And I wanted to speak with us briefly this morning about what I want to call moments of truth. A moment of truth may be defined as a time when a person is tested. A decision has to be made. A crisis has to be faced. A moment of truth. And every child of God has had at least one moment of truth in your life. That moment when you were confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You felt that burden to make a decision. It was a crisis moment, a decision that would alter the rest of your life and change the trajectory of your future. A moment of truth. Last night, we were given the privilege of getting a glimpse inside of Yuri's journal. As she shared with us her own personal moment of truth at the Jordan River. Up until that moment, she had become a spiritual wanderer, trying to find her true voice, her true place in the world under God, torn between two worlds. She was confronted by the moment. (laughs) And it was only a moment. It was only a short window of time in which a crucial decision had to be made. Because Yuri doesn't live in Israel. This opportunity to be baptized in the place where Jesus was baptized. This opportunity to be baptized in the place where Jesus' disciples baptized others. This opportunity would never come again. This was the instant. This was the moment. The brief hours and seconds that may very well define the rest of her life for decades maybe even the rest of her entire life, a moment of truth. Life itself is a moment. Every trial, every crisis is a test of character. Every struggle begs a question of us. It asks, what do you stand for? What do you most value? What are your priorities? Every moment of crisis is an opportunity for us to reshape our life vision, to retool and to recalibrate our goals and our agendas. But if every moment is a test, then every moment of truth is like a final exam. The difference between a test and a final exam is a subject of finality. A life test is not completely decisive. You can always go back and change your answer. You can always go back and change your mind because in a regular life test, it is I who am asking the question of myself. It is I who am evaluating my retort and the effects of my responses To life, I'm the one asking the question. I'm the one giving the answer. That's a life test. In a life test, I am both the facilitator and the one who is being tested. The ball is completely in my court, and I reserve the right to nuance my approach to life as I please. 
But more importantly, I have time to alter, to provide nuance. I have time to adjust my answer and my response to life. But in a moment of truth, I am not the one. You are not the one asking the question. In a moment of truth, I am not the one evaluating my responses. It is God. In a moment of truth, all answers are final answers. And my spiritual pencil has no eraser. Every jot and every mark is as permanent as the engravings in a tree. And even if Jesse moves away from that small town and never speaks to Anna again, that tree will forever declare his love for her. Long after he has forgotten her name, the engraving is forever. There are some decisions that are permanent. And when God asks those defining questions, you only get one chance. In the Bible, there are plenty of these moments of truth. Moments where men and women were confronted with existential evaluations, truthful interrogations from God. And their replies forever established their trajectories and even the future of their lineages. God asked Adam, where are you? And what have you done? Cain, why are you angry? Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Moses, what is in your hand? Elijah, what are you doing here? Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Existential questions, moments of truth. One of the most daunting challenges, one of the most penetrating, and if I'm being honest, one of the most intimidating truthful questions God asked any person in the Bible. He asked of Job. He asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you can. Each of these is an example of a moment of truth. The respondent only gets one chance to answer, one opportunity to say his or her piece. And in every one of these instances, the response determined that individual's relationship to God forever. Consequential moments of truth. And so today we want to drill down just a little bit into the moment of truth of King Saul to see what we might learn and how we can prepare ourselves when we are summoned by God. Some of us are being summoned right now and we have not yet given God any reply. But the allotted time, the sacred moment is winding down. This is not a test where we have the luxury of leaving the question blank. Because no answer is after all an answer. 
And the surprising thing about these moments of truth is that they tend to come right on the heels of what appear to be our greatest victories, our greatest accomplishments at those times when it seems like we're right in the middle of the will of God. That we're an intricate part of God's great scheme and plan for the world. That's how it happened to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. In that he obstructed him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and completely destroy everything that he has. Do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. <laughs> King Saul is God's chosen man for the mission. And it is indeed a privilege to be God's man, to be God's woman, isn't it? Everybody wants to be God's man. Everybody wants to be God's woman. God sends you on special missions. God cues you into some of his plans and designs. God gives you a seat in his situation room where you learn kingdom strategy. It's a good place to be, to be God's man, to be God's woman. And we know that whom God calls, God qualifies. We know that God equips each of his soldiers to accomplish the purposes for which he sent them. So in a sense, being, being called of God to do anything is a huge endorsement. God's calling is truly the only assurance his people have that we will fight, that we will overcome, that we will get the victory. The calling of God is God's assurance to us that we shall prevail. But what we don't often take the time to consider is that God's calling is a test. God's calling is a test in and of itself. God's calling is a challenge, whether we're challenged to pastor or challenged to sing on the praise team, whether we're challenged to head up prayer ministry or challenged to lead a small group. God's calling is itself a test. And the test is to see if we will allow the sweet assurance of God's calling and God's equipping. If we will allow that sweet assurance to devolve into hubris. Whether we will take the gifting that God has generously given us and employ it in the dismantling of the very things that God has invited us to build. The calling is a test. The calling is not a moment of truth, but a moment of testing. An opportunity for us to see what we're made of, to see what we really value. And for the most part, if you read it, for the most part, Saul passed the test. Verse four says that in response to getting this command from God, Saul summoned his army, marched over to Amalek and ambushed them there. But Saul didn't follow through. Saul didn't kill all of the people as God has command, had commanded him. He spared the life of the king. 
He spared the best of the sheep, the Bible says. He, he spared the valuable animals. Saul was unwilling to destroy everything completely. He didn't accomplish all that he had been assigned to do. But that was just a test. That was a moment for Saul to reflect upon his own value system and possibly over time to learn total obedience. That was a learning opportunity. Saul could grow beyond his greed. That's not a problem with God. All of God's people have shortcomings. God does not punish us for our shortcomings. Even though from time to time, God will make us more self-aware so that we can have an opportunity to change. God doesn't punish us for our shortcomings. These are just tests. Saul was tested and Saul was found wanting. Saul lacked those self-abandoning qualities by which the kingdom student betrays will and reasoning in exchange for the will of God. A plan that often flies in the face of all human logic. Saul trusted himself more than he trusted God. And because of this, Saul raised the kingdom alarm. Saul raised some kingdom suspicion, which led to a moment of truth. Then in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying this. I regret, this is God saying this. I regret that I have made Saul king. Wow. Can you imagine what it would be like for God to say that? Calvin, I regret that I made you a pastor. Wow. Laura, I regret that I made you a worship leader. What was I thinking? I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned his back from following me and he has not carried out my commands. Whoa. This is God's way of saying, hey, Samuel, I don't think I can trust this guy. I'm not sure of his motives. I'm not sure of his motivations. He's not moving right. He's not acting right. He is no longer listening to me. But notice, notice this. God does not make any final determination concerning Saul. He doesn't say, hey, I don't trust this guy, therefore. No, he doesn't give any recommendation. He just puts it out there to Samuel. I don't necessarily trust this guy. And the Bible says here, Samuel was furious cried out to the Lord all night because Samuel knows what this could mean. Samuel knows that God is initiating a moment of truth, a make or break exam. And not only will God's conclusion affect Saul, but it will affect everything that Saul touches from his household to the entire nation of Israel. So Samuel has a reason to be furious. And that is the magnitude of moments of truth. 
How we respond to those moments will have lasting and immense impact upon everything we touch. But all is not yet lost. Samuel knows all is not yet lost. So verse 12 says that Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. And unfortunately, God's suspicion of Saul began to be confirmed. The Bible says it was reported to Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. He's been here. Yeah, he's been here. He came here and he set up a monument to himself, a monument for himself. To set up a monument for himself means that Saul came here last night and Saul made his stand. Huh? Is that right? Saul came here last night and Saul usurped power. He has declared himself to be essential, unmovable. Saul came here last night and Saul is confused. Drunk with the blood of the Amalekites, drunk on his own ego, believing his own press. See, Saul came here last night tripping. Paul, the apostle, says this to us. If you think you are standing, be cautious lest you fall. Bright futures can turn bleak. Rich prospects can give way to poverty. High-mindedness can lead to low kingdom approval. Never imagine yourself to be the greatest. Always persuade yourself that you are the least among us because the least of us rarely falls. The person who keeps their ego at rock bottom never needs to worry about digging a hole for themselves. Saul is digging a hole for himself. And Saul is not instructed in the rule that if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you need to do is stop digging. But Saul doesn't recognize that he is in a hole. And this is the disarming reality of moments of truth. Saul views himself as being king of the hill. But it's a, a hill of his own making. It is not the mountain of God. He has laid his ladder against the wrong building. His hill is surrounded by mountains, which means that what he thinks is a hill is actually a depression, a hole. Saul is too high, or should I say Saul is too low to see it. Saul thinks he's building up when in reality he is digging deeper down. The first thing he's done here, he's anointed himself. He has built a monument for himself. And now when Samuel comes to Saul in verse 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Samuel comes to Saul in verse 13, Saul says to Samuel, Blessed are you of the Lord. <laughs> I have carried out the command of the Lord. Wow. And now Samuel knows that there is a serious, serious problem. There is a little known principle tucked away in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7, 
where the writer is recounting the story of the blessing that Melchizedek placed upon Abraham. And the writer gives this simple principle. He says that without any dispute, without any argumentation, the lesser person is blessed by the greater person. That's a very simple principle that we don't re re regularly recognize. The lesser person is blessed of the, the writer is saying that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, which tells you that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Without dispute, the less is blessed of the greater. What's going on here? Saul, the lesser, has gotten so high that he is trying to bless the greater. He is out of line. He is out of pocket. He is going beyond where God has called him to be. He's lost his mind. Blessed are you of the Lord, prophet Samuel. I have carried out the command of the Lord. There's a problem here. Saul is blessing Samuel, the prophet of God. Saul is blessing the one who anointed him king. Saul now views the prophet of God as his subordinate. There's a problem here. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Hmm. Is that right? Saul has misunderstood the workings of the kingdom of God. Saul has interpreted his successes as affirmations of his authority. Saul has fallen into the trap of imagining that by his deeds or by his intellect, by his drive or by his skill, he has arrived. But the fact of the matter is, and any kingdom person knows this, the fact of the matter is that there is no arriving in the kingdom of God. There is constantly an asking and a knocking and a seeking. There is never an arrival. Saul is misunderstood. He believes that he has come to a place. Now he's blessing the man of God. He has done what the Lord has commanded him. You have not arrived, Saul. Calm down. Look at all these problems he has. But would you believe this? Would you believe that none of Saul's shortcomings, none of Saul's misunderstandings or misnomers, none of these are moments of truth. These are just moments of testing. He has weaknesses and problems as do we all. He fails a lot of tests, but these are not moments of truth. Have you ever known a person like that? Have you ever known a person who seemed to be very smart? If you talk to them about any subject, they can talk about any subject, but they never do well on actual tests. Have you ever known somebody like that? Some people just don't test well. Some people buckle under pressure. Their minds go blank as soon as the test paper hits their desk and they fail to remember what they know. God has children like that, constantly failing. They are sincere. They're doing all they can to follow faithfully, but for reasons beyond their control, they can't seem to handle life's challenges with any requisite amount of faith. They can't seem to hold up under even the slightest burden. That's not a sin. Weakness is not a sin. 
So the question to Saul now becomes this. Saul, are you not obeying God because of some emotional or spiritual difficulty? Or are you not following the voice of God because your heart is no longer committed? Which one is it, Saul? And the answer to this question is going to determine the future of your kingdom. This is the final exam. This is a moment of truth. He says to Samuel, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But verse 14, Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? and the bellowing of the oxen, which I hear. It's a simple question. If you have followed the command of God, this sounds like a rather innocuous question. God said that you were to kill every single living thing in Amalek, that you were to leave nothing alive, us all. So if you have done what God commanded, why do I hear sheep and oxen bellowing behind you? And Saul responds and says, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have completely destroyed. We did a partial wrong answer. Wrong answer. And before Saul can even continue to explain in verse 16, Samuel says to Saul, stop. Don't say another word. This is a final exam and you are speaking too fast. Back up, take your time, listen again. Samuel said to Saul, stop. And let me inform you of what the Lord said to me last night. <laughs> Uh-oh, stop. And let me inform you of what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul is, Saul is pretty cocky here. Saul says, Samuel, speak. If you look at it, verse 16, chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, he said, speak, tell me what God said. I know I'm the man. I know who I am. So Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were insignificant in your own eyes. <clears throat> Listen to this. Is it not true that though you were insignificant in your own eyes, that you became the head of the tribes of Israel, even though you were insecure, even though you were so self-conscious. Is it not true that God took you from nothing and made you something? For the Lord anointed you as king over Israel. Is that not true? And the Lord sent you on a mission, Saul, and said, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are eliminated. Is this not true? And here comes the moment of truth. Here is the question that will determine Saul's fate. This is the question that Saul cannot afford to get wrong. This is the last chance. And God is so gracious. God didn't have to give him the last chance. God could have just said to Samuel, listen, Samuel, I don't trust this guy anymore. Therefore, go and demote him right now today. God could have just called it quits right there. He's being gracious here. He's leaving it in Samuel's hands. Samuel, you go and you evaluate this situation. You go and you administer this moment of truth. And then you let me know what you think. I'm not going to just kick him down because he has shortcomings. I want to work with the man. I want to work with the woman. I don't want to just kick him out. I want to give him opportunities to do better, to get it right. But the answer to this question is going to determine whether we keep walking together or whether we have to part ways. Hmm. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? This is the question. Instead, you loudly rushed upon the spoils and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why, Saul? This is the final exam question. Don't answer too fast and don't you dare get defensive. Why? Saul has a myriad of ways in which he can answer this question, but only one way is going to be the right way. Saul has a plethora of different explanations and excuses that he can put forward, but only one is going to be the correct explanation. That's what moments of truth are all about. When God calls me to account, will I tell God the truth? When God calls me to account, will I play the fool? Will I play the victim? When God calls me to account, will I tell God a lie? When God calls me to account, will I disagree with his assessment? Listen, the only way to respond to a moment of truth is to tell the unadulterated truth to God. The only posture, the only attitude in which I must respond to God's evaluations is from the posture of complete humility. Tell the truth and humble myself. Adam, where are you and what have you done? Adam gave God an excuse. And we all suffer for it to this very day. Cain, why are you angry? Cain decided not to answer God's question at all. And he and his posterity suffer till this very day. Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar answers in brokenness and says this. I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. I am running. I am giving up. I can't handle the pressure. I'm being honest with you, God. I'm being transparent with you, God. I don't know what to do. I am at my wit's end. I am considering giving up. I'm being honest. I am being humble. I am not complaining about Sarah. I'm not complaining about Abraham. No matter what they did to me, I'm not coming to you, God, with any confusion, with any conflict, with any playing the victim. I am coming to you in honesty and saying, I can't handle this anymore. And in response, in response to her honesty, in response to her humility, God blessed her and God blessed her posterity till this very day. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set the measurements of the earth, Job, since you know? Or who stretched the measuring line over the earth, Job? On what are its bases sunk? Who laid the cornerstones of the earth, Job? When when the morning stars came into being, when they sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Job, where were you then? Job, 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 who enclosed the sea with doors when it went out from the womb bursting forth? 
when I made of cloud its garments and thick darkness its swaddling bands? Where were you, Job? When I placed boundaries upon the sea, when I set a bolt and doors, and I said, as far as this point, you shall come, but no further. And here your proud waves will cease. Where were you when I did that, Job? This is the most difficult final exam in the whole Bible. This is the most difficult moment of truth in the whole Bible. Three chapters worth of this. This intense interrogation. And at the end, in this moment of truth, Job responded and said this. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say in response to you? Behold, I am insignificant. What, what can I say in response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply. I have spoken twice and I will add nothing more. That's humility. That's transparency. That is the right answer. And that is the only answer in response to moments of truth. Because the moment of truth comes only to remind me of my place. The moment of truth comes to search my heart to determine whether my commitments and my loyalties remain with God or if I have denied him, denied to give him his just due. The moment of truth comes to determine whether I have filled the coffers of my own pride with the treasures of God's glory. Moment of truth. Saul. If it is true that you have done what God commanded, why am I hearing the bellowing of sheep? <laughs> why am I hearing the bellowing of oxen? Why? What do you think Saul's response should have been? I'll tell you what my response would have been. You know what? You know, you know what, Samuel? You're right. I hear those oxen and sheep too. You, you know what? Give me just a moment. Let me sharpen my sword. You're not going to hear him in a minute. That would have been my response. If it's true you did the command of God, why am I hearing the sheep? Give me just a moment. You won't hear him in a moment. I'm going to take care of this right now. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I made a mistake. You know what? I meant to kill all of them. I didn't get them all. Give me just a moment. Let me get the guys together. We're going to take care of this right now. That would have been my response. Humility, brokenness, honesty. I failed to do it. Why am I hearing the oxen? You know, we know what happened, Samuel? I failed. I am wrong. Give me just a moment. We're going to make this right. <laughs> he would have saved his kingdom. He would have saved his entire legacy. But this was a moment of truth. And the truth came out. Instead of coming clean, verse 20, you know what Saul said to Samuel? In response to Saul asking, why did you disobey the voice of the Lord? You know what Saul responded with? 
I did obey the voice of the Lord. And that was the end of the test. That was the moment of truth and you cannot change your answer. That's your answer. I am confronting you and telling you that the truth is that you have not obeyed God and your response to me is that you have. Oh, close the book. The test is over. No more questions. Thanks for playing. Hmm. I did obey the voice of the Lord. And you read the rest of the chapter, you see what comes next. Saul begins now to, Samuel begins now to tell Saul that he has failed the great. He begins to prophesy to Saul and tell Saul about the trouble and the trauma that is going to come upon him and his family. And you know what Saul tried to do upon hearing the, the end result of the final exam? You know what he tried to do? You're not going to believe it. Yes, you will. He tried to repent. He tried to take it back. I did obey the voice of the Lord. No, you didn't. Let me tell you what's going to happen now. <laughs> because you're a little bit too cocky. Because you're too big for yourself. Because you did not understand the gravity of the moment. Because you did not understand that this was a moment of truth. Let me tell you what's going to happen now. And when he starts hearing what's about to happen, wait, 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 wait. Let, let me erase my answer. There is no erasure to moments of truth. I want to change my, no, there is no changing your response. You have spoken from your heart and your heart has said what is true. And you can't take it back. This is not a lesson for you all. It's a lesson for me. All of us have to be challenged and checked. All of us experience moments of truth where the answer to the question is final. I experienced it just last week. I can't give you the whole story, but right to the brink of trouble. God wants to know what shall be your response, man. <laughs> You've got to know when to put your hand on your mouth and stop talking. Stop knowing what you don't know and be honest with God. <laughs> And if you can't do that, you may as well brace yourself for trouble because some questions, some answers, you don't get to change. Some answers will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life and your future. So don't answer too fast. Slow down and remember the rule. Anytime heaven, heaven asks you a question, humble yourself and tell the truth. If you do that, you'll stay on God's good side all the time. Quiet yourself down and tell the truth. This, this is a lesson that I, I'm coming away from this retreat with. I hope you, you can come away with some, you know, you come on a retreat and you want to leave with this titillating feeling, and I'm leaving with a very titillating feeling. But God doesn't send us on retreats just so that we can feel better about ourselves, about our lives. God sends us on retreat for us to take a moment to reflect honestly. I didn't come here to pretend with God or to act religious. I came here to be evaluated, to walk in the silence, and to allow God to tell me what is true and what is not. I hope you've experienced that this weekend. This is a wonderful time for me 
to recalibrate, to catch my breath, to be restrengthened, to be revived, and to be reminded once again of what my loyalties should be in comparison to what my loyalties are. Thank God for the opportunity to realign. I hope you've realigned this week. I have. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity, for this moment to quiet ourselves and to sit in your presence, to hear from you. I pray, Father God, that some of us have learned how to distinguish your voice even more clearly during this season. I pray that others of us have learned how to hear your voice through others. And then that some have learned to hear your voice even in nature. What a wonderful season this has been. And even though we leave this place, Lord, we know that we do not leave your presence, but you're with us always, even to the end of the world. And so we pray that you would make each of our homes a retreat. A place of silence, a place of solitude, a place of sweet communion with you that though this day may pass, this moment never does. That we may dwell in the house of the Lord in our minds and our spirits forever. In Jesus' name.